0: Well, now this morning we return to meditative cultivation of equanimity. If you're so inspired, you might want to go to the Maha Ubeksha, the great, the great equanimity, which once again is an aspiration, aspiration that we may be all free of attachment and aversion to those who are near and far and to abide in equanimity, the highest level of equanimity. So this is really a very nice segue, is when cultivates this, it's just right next door. You may as well just open the door and cross right into the cultivation of bodhicitta itself. I think you know what that is, to aspire for perfect enlightenment. And again, because in our Buddhist understanding, it is really a Buddha who is having dispelled all the obscurations of the mind, afflictive obscurations, craving, hostility, delusion, but also a m- more subtle whole dimension of obscurations uh, that only a Buddha is free of. In fact, the sravaka Arhats are not free of them. The pratyeka Buddhas are not free of them. Only a perfectly enlightened Buddha is free of this most subtle level of obscurations called cognitive obscurations. And only when those are free, it's like you remove the last veils, the, the finest cirrus clouds that are veiling your own Buddha, your own Buddha nature, your own Dhammakaya. When those have vanished, then then the your awareness just fully expands in terms of three fundamental qualities: wisdom, compassion, and power. And it's power, not just so you can not so you can show off, but power to be able to do whatever is needed from your side to enable others to find the way to liberation. And so, in terms of enlightened activities, whether of a Buddha or of a bodhisattva, in the classic Mahayana teachings. They're said to be four modes, and they seem to be quite, quite, how do you say, inclusive. As far as I know, I think all of the activities of a bodhisattva or a buddha fit within one or more of these categories, and I find them very, very meaningful. And also kind of mind-expanding, because my own sense is that in the West, where we've not had a really vital, very prominent contemplative tradition, neither Judaism or Christianity, let alone Islam, or any other Western traditions that might be, shamanic and so forth, It's just not very prominent. It's not a very prominent element of our culture. It hasn't been for quite a number of hundreds of years now. And so our notion of saints, our notion of holy beings, although it has certainly some basis in reality, I think sometimes a little bit narrow. Like we only want them to be in one way, a certain kind of stereotype of this is what a saint is. And they always must be very peaceful and very, very just very peaceful and loving and gentle, which is great. That is certainly One mode of enlightened activity, and in fact, it's the first one, of the the four modes. First one, pacifying, calming, soothing. It's gentle, very nurturing. But above all, it's pacifying. And many, in many occasions, on many occasions, this is really what's called for above anything else. It has, to my mind, just now my own little stereotype. It's a very motherly quality to it, very nurturing quality, very gentle. And so, there's one mode, and the mode of activity. And I think I've mentioned before, the color associated with that is white. So the color of nurses, the color of a lot of nuns wear white, white habits, and so forth. ava Avalokiteshvara, Tara, and so forth, prominent colors, white. That, that quality of pacifying, of purifying, vadrasattva, and so forth. But that's not all there is to being an enlightened, being active in the world. On other occasions, that may be not the most appropriate, not the most f- helpful or effective in leading others out of suffering and towards the true causes of happiness. And so sometimes the activity called for that would be optimal would be enriching, enriching. So it could be, again, if people are hungry, then enrich them, give them food, if they need shelter, clothing, and so forth. So sometimes material goods, but sometimes that which we can offer to enrich the lives of others, something much more intangible, like education sometimes that's the most important thing you can give people, a mundane education, a dharma education, but provide them, enrich their lives with information, with understanding. So quite, quite understandably, the color associated with this mode of enlightened activity is gold or yellow, the color of gold itself, right, of, of riches. But on other occasions, because we're living in the kind of world that we do, Sometimes what's really called for to be most effective in helping others find a way out of suffering and find genuine happiness, to follow a path of liberation, sometimes will be a display of power. So Padmasambhava did this on occasion. The Buddha himself did this on occasion. And many other great teachers of the past. So when they're manifesting this power, just something really quite awesome, like, whoa, you want to kind of step, I didn't see that one coming. You're not just seeing purity or someone who's very, very wise, you're seeing In enlightenment, there's also tremendous power you're tapping into. It's the power of your own Buddha nature, right? power of the energy of primordial consciousness. It's pretty awesome. And the Buddha himself displayed this on many occasions, and so have many other great beings over the past, throughout the history of Buddhism. And, of course, in other traditions, it goes without saying. And then finally, again, given the world we're living in, on occasion... When the situation is really gnarly, really difficult, people are really close-minded or engaged in really awful behavior, and they need to be wakened up by, qu- by a swift shake, uh, then, unfortunately, the, the, our occasions win as a last resort, really. Because I think, in a way, this is sequential. First pacifying, if that's not effective, then enriching. If that's not effective, then the display of power. And if that's not sufficient, then, finally, the display of ferocity, Display of ferocity. Now, it could be just ferocious speech, which kind of like shakes people up. It, it, they don't like to hear it, but whoa, oh, they get a little bit of whiplash. And that can shake them out of, you know, shake them out of some habit, some rut, some mode of very harmful activity that they're engaged with. Because they say, oh, this, this could be dangerous. And then they back off. You know? So governments do that. They will threaten with their laws, with their police, and so forth and so on. Uh, sometimes used effectively, sometimes used out, out of sheer foolishness. But there is, and yet this is an interesting point, that there, this is classic Mayana Buddhism, it's not something coming from some, some outside source, that there are times for this as well, and that ferocity may entail violence. So there is, in principle, okay, there are in principle occasions when a a Buddha himself, will engage in violent activity, but the motivation is the same for all four, four modes, the pacifying, enriching, the powerful, and then the ferocious the motivation is exactly the same as before, and if you think about parents, a very imagined kind of ideal parents, who are raising their children, educating, bringing their children up. Sometimes it's just nurturing, loving, soothing, healing. Sometimes they're giving education and, of course, giving food and so forth and so on. Sometimes the parents just said, "Said why? Because I'm your parent. You know, I'm bigger. You know, I'm in charge here. That's why. That's why I can tell you what to do, and you can't tell me what to do. That's it. Like it or lump it." If you don't like it, go to your room. So That's not violent and not ferocious, but you're just saying, look, I'm bigger, I have, I have more power here, and I'm using it. But not because you know, I'm trying to pound my chest looking how powerful I am. No, this is what, what is needed here for the children. Right? And then finally, again, we take the acknowledgement of parents, sometimes punishment. Tibetans had no qualms about, all, all about giving a good whopping, you know, to children when it, when it was called for, or whether or not it's that. But just, you know, punishment. So, the color for the, the enriching is gold, for power is red, like ruby red, and for ferocity it's deep blue, like indigo blue, dark blue, like mahakala, yamandaka, and vajrapani, and so forth and so on. And so tapping into Buddhahood, fully unveiling the, the powers, the potentials of your own Buddha nature, then brings forth these three qualities, wisdom, compassion, and power, and then if you like to engage in this practice of cultivating great equanimity, if you like to do that with Dong Lan, which is kind of, a, kind of a natural match, then you may imagine inviting in all the blessings of all the enlightened ones. If you have a guru, invite in the blessings of your guru. And then as you invite, as you draw this all in, could be in the form of white light, then as if your own heart is a prism, just for fun, this is fun, this is kind of more like art than anything else. But imagine drawing in this, uh, this radiant white light of just sheer purity, of the, the, the light of enlightenment itself, of awakening. Imagine this drawing this in as you breathe in, coming into your heart and as it were being refracted through a prism. Then as you breathe out and send out light, you may imagine sending out white light, yellow light, red light, blue light. And just imagine serving the needs of sentient beings in that way. So as with simple shamatha practice, settling the mind, for example, we're doing our best to rest in our best facsimile, or as close as we can to resting in substrate consciousness and viewing the mind, viewing mental events and so forth from that perspective. When we engage in open presence meditation in Dzogchen, we're doing our best to rest in our closest facsimile to Rikpa and viewing reality from that perspective. And when we engage in this practice, then we're doing our best to rest in and arouse from the heart of bodhicitta. So it may feel somewhat contrived, a bit artificial, a bit conceptual and so forth. Of course. Of course. But then it's through that cultivation, through that unveiling, that it becomes more and more authentic until finally it's kind of like it just breaks through. The bodhicitta just kind of breaks through, breaking through from beneath. And instead of you're having to cultivate it from above, it just breaks through from beneath. And then it's just like the sun has come over the horizon and it's just flowing out. It's emanating light from all directions. And then, when that's arising spontaneously and the sun has really risen, then you know that bodhicitta is arising now in an uncontrived fashion, effortless, uncontrived, authentic. And when your mind is bodhicitta, this is simply the way you're viewing all sentient beings, when your mind is bodhicitta, then you're a bodhisattva. And let me know, and I want to start offering prostrations. Okay? No joke. No joke. Every Bodhisattva is worthy of tremendous homage. Let's practice.